ordinarily when I've been preaching the last little while, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, we will return there at some point in the future, Revelation chapter 20. But today, as part and parcel of wanting to celebrate, honour and encourage marriage in God's church, I'd like to, us to look at Colossians uh, chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 12 together. Therefore... As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And in, uh, as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We have, like I say, the opportunity this morning uh, together to to celebrate, to honour, to encourage, to look at uh, God's design of marriage. We're going to do that today. Obviously, in writing that passage, writing this letter to the Colossians, um, Paul arrives at a point where having addressed the whole church, he wants to bring some specific words to different groups of people within the congregation, hence speaking to wives and husbands. And later on he goes to speak to, uh, to children and fathers, parents and slaves and masters and so on. So he kind of arrives at those specific words, but it's all in the context of talking to the church. And so in much of what we look at this morning, there'll be a focus, there'll be an application on on marriage, on husbands and wives, but in the same way that Paul was talking to the whole church, we're looking at the whole church this morning and looking actually at ways in which we as God's people are to relate to one another and demonstrate what it means to belong to God's family to a world that needs to uh, to know what God's love is like. So yes, we're looking at marriage, but first of all, we're looking at it in the context of the church. And we're going to see the importance of a few things. The importance, first of all, that we're going to look at is, is the importance of fellowship. Paul is addressing married couples, but like I say, he's, he's speaking to them in the context of the whole church. And so it's important for us to look at what the, the significance of fellowship, belonging together, being God's church together. God's solution for loneliness is family. And we see that in, in Psalm, in, in the Psalms and in chapter 68, for example. If I can find it myself. Psalm 68 and verse 6. God sets the lonely in families, it tells us there. And God's outlining here his plan for, for his family, his people, his chosen people who are his 
family, God's design is for us to be joined in community together. And that means single people. That also means married people. Not in personal and private isolation, but joined together in a people knowing God. Uh, Back in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we find there a description of someone who is incredibly lonely. Um, We see in Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 8, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. It's kind of this caricature, perhaps, this example of someone who's got so trapped in... In work, perhaps in pursuing personal wealth, in pursuing personal fulfillment, that he's become so isolated from what God wants us to enjoy, fellowship in a community, fellowship in a church, that he's realized this is meaningless, this is futile. God has not designed us, uh, any one of us, to just be in that kind of isolation. Independent living. So it goes on in Ecclesiastes to say, uh, two is better than one because they have a good return for their work. Now that can be applied to marriage, but it's implied broadly to, to all of us. We're not called to live a lonely life. Two is better than one. They get a good return for their work. Well, what does that return mean? Does that mean they're enabled just to earn more money, establish a, a better standard of living for themselves? Well, no, the, the, the benefits of being two rather than one, the benefits of being in community rather than isolation is the, uh, receiving the benefits of fellowship. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may over, be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three stands is not quickly broken. It's almost picturing there... People going on a journey, and in the ancient um, Near Eastern world, uh, going on a journey perhaps had some risks associated with it. You could fall down, and if you fell on a rocky path, and there was no one there to reach out and grab you, you could be tumbling head over heels um, to serious injury or death, just practically speaking. So... Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Pity the man who's sleeping under the stars at night and is shivering by himself. No, two, there's, there's warmth. And there can be other threats that overpower, um, people who, um, would do us, would, would, would spot a vulnerable individual and, and want to do them harm. No, two can defend themselves. So it's speaking generally to us the, the value, the importance of fellowship of belonging together and obviously applies to marriage too the 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 benefit the advantage the one of the good things of marriage is you have someone alongside you to help you when you when you fall when you stumble um someone to encourage you someone maybe sometimes to help you snap out of a bad attitude uh to snap out of self-pity um or what have have you that two people together can help keep their their path heading in the right uh, direction. So we see here, but not just exclusively for, for married people, the importance 
of fellowship. The early church devoted themselves to fellowship. We see that in Acts and in chapter 2. This new kind of fledgling community of people who'd given their lives to Jesus, who had repented of sin and were uh, receiving the forgiveness that was in Jesus. It says in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, they were devoting themselves to a few things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And fellowship, we think, well, what, what actually is this? What does this actually, what does this word actually mean? To our ears, it can sound very twee. It can kind of sound archaic. But we see there in Acts chapter 2 a, a, a picture, examples of what fellowship means. The text in the NIV, at least, says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, which is perhaps unhelpful. Fellowship is not a thing. It's an activity that we do together. It's, it's sharing life together. And that's what was happening in the church. That's what God desires to happen in the church. There's a, there's a sharing of life. Yeah, there's a, a meeting together. We see that as helping one another. Sometimes that's, uh, we see it in Acts, people selling possessions. So they've got resources to give to other people's needs. But it's not like there's one group of people in the church and they are the professional helpers. They are the, the do-good pastors. And then there's the people who obviously need to be on the receiving end. There are the projects, uh, and, and, and help and fellowship is kind of like just a one-way transfer. Um, no, it's a, this is, this is a one-anothering. Uh, I receive help and encouragement, and I'm enabled to give it as well. That's what God has planned for his, his people. It's great then that as a community we want to be like that demonstration that we see in Acts, devoting ourselves to fellowship. That means sort of deliberate action. It means there are things that as a church we organize. Today, as well as meeting together, we're going on a picnic. Everyone is welcome. You think, well, that's not, that's not a spiritual thing, is it? That's not kind of like a highly prized spiritual activity. Well, actually, in a sense without wanting to over-spiritualize it, it is. Because we want to share life. We want to get to know each other. We don't just want uh, our, our meetings, our times together to be very, to be very formal and to be uh, just at a certain level. We want to share life together. Picnics, bank, uh, walking on uh, bank holiday. I think we've got one of those planned tomorrow as well in the Peak District. Um, so stuff that we organize. Uh, meeting together as core groups. But there's a challenge for us in our lives, and perhaps in our culture, that we, in, in doing fellowship together, that we create enough space in our lives to be spontaneous. So spending time together, being in and out of one another's homes, meeting together, sharing time, having the opportunity to pray with each other and find out what's going on in life, is not just something that we have to strictly diarize and say, yeah, do you know what? I am free. It would be great to catch up sometime. I'm free. In August, it would be wonderful to see you then. It's actually, it's good. But sometimes we, we've got to face the challenge. Now, because we value fellowship, because we value being together, because we value being part of a community, we're actually going to leave some space. 
We're going to leave some time that's, uh, that allows us, yeah, in the midst of life that's going on, to think, actually, we've got an opportunity right now. Are you free? Um, seizing opportunities to share life together. Now, well, how does this fellowship come about? We've, we've looked a little bit at what it involves, what it might involve in the life of, uh, of God's people. How does it come about? What makes it possible? Or perhaps it's better to say, who makes it possible? And we see that in this passage here in, in Colossians. Paul is describing God's people. He says in verse 11 of the chapter we're just looking at, chapter 3, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. In a sense, it's making the point that though God is joining us together, it's not necessarily the case that we will have a lot that we share in common. We might not share nationality. We might not share background. We might not share kind of income. We might not share postcode. Um, uh, we might not share all of the same experiences of life. What do we share then? What is our fellowship, our unity founded on? Well, it's founded on Jesus. And in fact, that really would sum up the whole message of the book of Colossians. Jesus Christ is enough. Jesus is everything we need. He is the foundation of all of life. And so we see as we've, we, we look through this passage that we've just been looking at, we just read, everything is to do with Jesus. Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Since as members you're one body, you were called to peace and be thankful Let the peace of Christ. What he's saying is, if you have received Jesus into your life, you have the peace of Christ. Jesus is completely at peace with God the Father. And he brings us, therefore, into the same peace. And so by receiving what he has done, Maybe as, as Phil was just referring to earlier on, we've, we've seen a horrific example this week of, of terrorist hatred. Someone with, with blood on their hands to share a message of hate. Jesus willingly allowed blood to, his own blood to be shed from his own hands by dying on the cross to share an incredible message of love that we can come into relationship with Almighty God. Let the peace of Christ, knowing that peace, knowing that we can, we're at ease with God. God, when God sees us, if we're in Him, if we're in Jesus, when God sees us, He no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our, our old way of life, our old hostility towards Him. He sees peace. He sees the goodness of Jesus and We're at peace with him. So the peace of Christ. We are also encouraged to let the word of Christ uh, dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs and so on. So the, the word of Christ dwelling richly amongst us. It's abundantly at home in us. We're We're teaching and admonishing one another, encouraging each other. And I wonder if you realize that actually that's part and parcel of what we're doing 
when we're singing together, we get together on occasions like this, and one of the things we want to devote ourselves to is worshipping Jesus. As we do that, it's, we are encouraging one another. It might also be that we're, we're admonishing one another. We're, maybe our own kind of frame of mind is just getting a little bit corrected. Oh yeah, we're, we're reminded of what's true. The peace of Christ, the wor- word of Christ, worship of Christ, singing and rejoicing, giving thanks that in Christ we have become God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So God's desire is for a, a new community on this earth, a new growing and vibrant community of people who know his love, know his peace, know his word, enjoying uh, our destiny together, enjoying our calling that God has called us, his chosen people, holy and dearly loved. He's called us to be part of this community, not in lonely or, dare I say, selfish isolation. Whether we are, we're married, whether we're single, this is the community that God wants us to be a part of. In our world, in our culture, or not in our culture, but in the culture uh, amongst us where we, where we live, actually the focus is so often right slap bang on the individual. Make sure you get exactly what you want out of life. It emphasizes my personal desire for self Fulfillment, And actually marriage and relationships can be seen in the same light. Um, I, I want to be in a relationship because that will most satisfy, most fulfill me. And what the danger is, what can happen is, even our expectations of, of marriage, which is a good thing that God has given, that it, it kind of turns inwards. It's about, it's about me. No. God's desire is that we're part of a, a community serving, helping, blessing one another as well as a world out there that, that desperately needs to know God's love. So again, we're, we're celebrating an anniversary today. Not because for Stuart and Ginny, for 40 years, they have managed to get all that they want out of life. That their marriage has enabled them to um, achieve all that they want for their own personal fulfillment and and so on. No, it's, it's because for 40 years they've remained faithful for the promises that they've made to serve each other, to prefer one another, to support and encourage one another. And in doing so, uh, also being part of a community where we serve one another too. So this passage reveals the importance of fellowship for those who are married and those who are signal single also shows us as well as the importance of fellowship the importance of of forbearance which we'll come to in a moment and forgiveness the bible has a wonderful way of both being beautifully inspirational lifting our eyes to god's big and wonderful plans for his church and for marriages that reflect his steadfast love it's got a way of being painting a glorious vision. It's also got a way, as it were, of being painfully realistic too. Um, 
So here we also see that God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, are instructed to, to put on certain things, to put on certain characteristics. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are things that reflect what God is like. God is incredibly compassionate. God is incredibly kind. Uh, God is uh, a humble king, a gentle saviour, and he's wonderfully patient with us. And then he's calling us to demonstrate the same characteristics. I wonder, in the context of marriage, whether Paul wants to write, uh, remind the Colossian husbands, and perhaps uh, husbands amongst us as well, to particularly bear in mind these things that we're being instructed to put on, this compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Because if you see later on in verse 19, the, the particular word of instruction that Paul has for husbands is, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's like, wow, the, we're, we've got an amazing call in God, but it's realistic as well. Come on, husbands, clothe yourselves with these things. Obviously not exclusively to us blokes, but it can be relevant. Am I demonstrating tender-hearted, merciful kindness in the way that I seek to serve and lead, bless and encourage my wife? Am I humble in the way that I speak? Am I gentle when it comes to us seeking to make a decision together um, about our lives, about the way in which we parent, about what uh, goals or desires we might have for for the year ahead. Am I am I patient? Am I a patient husband? It's kind of clarified in two specific ways that perhaps those characteristics are. Um, are spelt out. We have those five characteristics. Then we have a, a couple of examples of the way in which all of us are, seek, uh, are to seek to demonstrate them um, one with another. I've kind of mentioned two of them uh, already. Or I've mentioned them already. Uh, we could sum them up as forbearance and forgiveness. Forbearance, a slightly old-fashioned sounding word, but since it began, began with the same letter, I thought I'd shoehorn it in there. Forbearance, bearing with Cutting someone some slack. Going easy. Uh, not expecting perfection in someone else that I'm probably unlikely to be able to consistently produce in myself. That patience, that gentleness, is to be coming out in, in bearing with one another. What does it mean to bear with one another? I think we... We bear with one another's strangeness. At some point, each one of us is slightly strange. Or I'll just be speaking for myself. There's something about us. We've all got our own peculiar foibles, eccentricities. And then when you get married to someone, you... Discover, as well as all the things that you love about this other person, you discover they're strange. There are things about them that are different. And in our household, in our marriage, we have to sometimes remind ourselves 
that strange or different isn't necessarily wrong. And that can sometimes help us to cultivate gentleness and kindness and patience. Now, sometimes uh, it can go into the next category because strangeness we have to bear with, which sounds like one of the kind of irritating phrase from a sitcom. Bear with, bear with. Um, in God's kingdom, see, it's wonderfully realistic. We've got a wonderful call in God to enjoy fellowship. The people of God have got an eternal destiny to be with Jesus forever. We are, because of God and because of Jesus in us, we're the light of the world. And then it says, bear with one another. Kind of brings it right down to earth. This is not pie in the sky. This is not kind of idealistic mumbo jumbo. It's no, the church and also marriage has got a huge significance in God's kingdom. God has got wonderful plans and purposes for his church and for marriage. In fact, the two are joined together because we know that in eternity, it's good. there's going to be a wedding. And we've seen that in Revelation recently. There's going to be a wedding um, between Christ and his bride, the church. That's all of us. A wedding, a marriage to eclipse in joy and celebration any marriage that we might know of here on earth. That's what, await, that's, that's what awaits for us, the church. It's wonderful. It's majestic. And God is inviting anyone and everyone to be a part of his people to enjoy an eternity with him. A wonderful destiny. Here on the earth, bear with one another. Put up with each other. Go easy on each other. Cut each other some slack. Because here on the earth, you're bound to rub up against each other's strangeness, each other's foibles. That happens in marriage. Um, in the early days, um, Rachel and I, we've been married for coming up to eight years. And in those early days, and still now from time to time, we might encounter one another's strangeness. And um, in that time, we've also had to forgive. We've had to forgive hurts. Sometimes the challenge is to work out what's strange and what's sin. Um, because we'll have to handle both. And one of the things we had to uh, deal with in the early days is the way in which I cleaned my teeth. Um, is it sin or is it strange? <laughs> because Rachel pointed out to me after a few, no, after a few weeks um, that when I, uh, after brushing my teeth, I'm very thorough. I like to really go at it. You've got to get your teeth clean. You can't kind of put up with uh, um, irritating bits and bad breath left behind. So once you've brushed your teeth and in your mouth have a slightly uncomfortable quantity of toothpaste stuff, you need to get rid of it, don't you? So that's what I did. I was very thorough in that task. Apparently, I was too kind of high, too far away from the sink... When I, when I sought to unleash the toothpaste mixture from my mouth, and being a thoroughgoing kind of a guy, you really, excuse me a minute, you kind of really want to get rid of it. So, oh, oh, sorry, forgive me. Is it strange or is it sin? I got rid of the stuff. Well, what I hadn't realized is it wasn't just the sink that was affected. 
the, uh, the deposit kind of was larger than the kind of the area that the flow of water from the tap was able to deal with. But I blissfully um, was unaware of that, so I didn't really fuss about it. So, Rach had to put up with me. And she also graciously pointed it out. And sometimes there are trivial things we think, actually, this can just rub up against me, and I'm irritated by it. Do I need to bear with it? Do I need to forgive it? Well, kind of maybe both, or either. I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to make sure that I, I do it. I want to demonstrate uh, gentleness. So we could have a show of hands. Was that strange? See, this will help us resolve a great debate in our household. Was it strange or was it sin? Strange. Sin. (laughs) I win! (laughs) No, I didn't say it right. And actually, yeah. Maybe less people wanted to kind of accuse me of being sinful in this context. But thank you, Rachel, uh, for bearing with me in so very many ways. And to be perfectly honest, uh, I could be more candid and describe ways in which Rachel's had to do more than bear with me. She's had to forgive me because that's the reality of marriage. That's the reality of relationships full stop, but it's the reality of marriage. That one sinner plus one sinner does not equal zero conflict, does it? Um, One dad and one son does not equal zero conflict. One friend plus one friend, even in the church, does not equal zero conflict. There will be reasons where we could be tempted not to be patient with one another and get irritated with one another. That's just reality. The issue is, Will we resolve those things for the glory of God by demonstrating compassionate kindness, humble gentleness, and the kind of patience that leads us to bear with one another and to forgive one another? How do we forgive? How are we to forgive one another? It's not... The case, you know, sometimes you can kind of hear irritating advice. Irritating advice is, well, if so-and-so could do it, then so can you. So get over yourself, pull your finger out, and do it. So if someone else can forgive, you do it too. Just do it. And you think, well, that doesn't really encourage, that doesn't really enable, doesn't really empower me. Sometimes that kind of advice can just make things a little bit Worse, in actual facts. That's not what Paul is writing here. He's not saying, well, Jesus forgave you, you ungrateful swine. So if Jesus can forgive, you have to as well. It's no, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So when you are next aware of a situation in which you need to forgive someone, it's almost that reminder Let's take a step back from that. I need to remember. I need to freshly press into. I need to come to the point where I'm fully recognizing, as much as I'm able to, just how much the Lord has forgiven me. You see, I've actually received from Jesus incredible forgiveness. And this is what we're told in the book of Colossians a bit earlier on. 
in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I was once in a dominion of darkness. I was once living a life completely shrouded in in darkness. In Christ, I've been brought through into a kingdom, the sun loves, and in this kingdom and in Jesus, I've been rescued. He laid hold of me and he grabbed me. And he, you know, it, it was me destined to fall off the edge of the cliff. But I've got a saviour who grabbed me and brought me close to himself. That's how I have benefited from from Jesus. He's rescued me. He's forgiven me. It, it goes on later on um, to describe it further in chapter 2 and verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. It's like that's what's happened to my sin. My sin has been completely crucified with Jesus. My record of wrong. Can you imagine? Think for a moment what it would be like if you were literally confronted with your own personal record of wrong. Everything itemized. Everything written down. Detail is there to the max. This is my life. This is my record of the wrong stuff. This is the stuff I've done to hurt other people. This is the stuff that I've said. This is the stuff that I have thought. This is the stuff that I've done with my hands. This is the stuff that I've done with my mind. This is the stuff that I've done with my heart. This is the stuff that I've done against God. This is the stuff that I've done against neighbors. This is the stuff I've done against people that I don't know and the people that I do know. And it's all written down. And Jesus says, no, because I was willing to shed my own blood, what was happening, if you're prepared to believe it and to receive it for yourself, what was happening when I died on the cross is I was nailing your record of wrong. I was ripping it up. I was destroying that which stood opposed to you. Your history of rebellion against God. It could be very respectable forms of rebellion. It could be very horrific forms of disobedience. Whatever it, whatever it was, whatever, it's, whatever my background, um, you know, uh, Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, whoever we are, whatever our background, whatever our situation in life, wherever we live, whatever our nationality, this is the truth, that our record of wrong was nailed to the cross in Jesus, if we're prepared, if we believe to receive it. That's what's wonderfully true. Now, Jesus shared a parable uh, in Matthew uh, chapter something, chapter 18. And it was the parable of the unforgiving servants. And there's a servant there. Um, you could read it on another occasion. There's a servant there, uh, Jesus tells a story, who had an astronomical debt. 
it was massive. Um, in monetary terms at the time, it's described as being 10,000 talents. Some would say that was a, a quantity of money that was simply unknown, unheard of in life at the time. I don't know how we describe that today in monetary terms. This is billions upon billions upon trillions. A massive debt. And the person to whom that individual owes the debt says, you're forgiven. That debt is completely removed. I completely forgive you of that astronomical, huge and massive record of wrong. You're free. And then what happens, if you know the story, that same servant who's just been forgiven from absolutely the most unimaginably massive debt that was impossible. There weren't funds available on the planet to pay that debt back, is kind of the point, I think, that's being made. There's no way that debt could have been cleared. The master says, I've cleared it. I've done it. I will take that debt upon myself. That's what Jesus has done for us. A debt that could not be paid. He forgives in his son dying on the cross. That's what happened. What does that servant who's then received that freedom go and do? He goes and encounters someone who owes him some money. How much money does that person owe him? It's described in kind of monetary terms at the time uh, as being a hundred denarii. In contrast, that debt is tiny in comparison to what's just been forgiven. However, it's not a pittance. It's not nothing. At the time, a hundred denarii was perhaps, and it's difficult, we we can't be absolutely confident um, with the exchange rate through the course of a few thousand years, um, but that would be looking at like three months' wages. So what would that mean for you? How much money would someone need to... need to owe you what you need to live on for three months in other words it's kind of it's talking about that kind of quantity now it's it's tiny in comparison to the debt that's just been forgiven it's still a debt it still hurts and at the point at which we need to forgive someone else it still can hurt it's still real it's not kind of forget about it and move on no something actually needs to be Stared in the face. This is what's happened. Now I've got the choice. What do I do? Do I forgive? Or does this eat at me? Do I allow this debt, in a sense, to kind of grow in my mind because I'm dwelling on it? Yeah, so in marriage, in family life, in church life, there will be conflict. There will sometimes be Three months worth, if you like, of debt, of, of damage. And the question is, will we resolve it well for the glory of God? Or will we allow it to build up? One person in writing to married couples was encouraging married couples, 
you've got to make sure you clean out your trash. You clean out your rubbish. Now, that's true literally, obviously, isn't it? That um, week by week or however frequent they come, we've got rubbish in our household that can clutter things up and we need to get rid of it. And so it calls for deliberate action. We have in our house some bins and we put stuff in bins and then we tie the bags up that were in the bins and we take that outside and we put it in the wheelie bin. And on the right day, we put that wheelie bin at the end of the drive or onto the pavement because it needs to get picked up and cleared away. And if we didn't do that, what would life be like with an increasing amount of, of, of kind of rubbish, cluttering things up? And the point's the same. We need to do that in terms of forgiveness, in terms of not keeping a lengthy record of someone else's wrong. No, I see what's happened to my record of wrong. I see what, how Jesus, I see how God has treated me. Now I've got a choice. I have received that. I've received grace. I've received forgiveness. Now I've got the choice to bend that out to other people. From God to me, grace and forgiveness. Knowing all my sin, that's how he's, he's chosen to treat me. Now I've got the choice. Am I going to bend that out in the way that I relate, in the way that I interact with others. That's the call of God on our lives. That's what God takes delight in. We've kind of seen it as we've looked through. Fellowship, forbearance, forgiveness. In the one hand, we see that God has got massive plans for his church, for his community, for his people. God delights in marriage and he delights in covenant keeping and faithfulness. And he's got Glorious plans for his people who are his bride and, and who will be with him in glory forever. The Bible kind of lifts our eyes to the glories of God and the wonder. And it's, it's kind of saying to us, look, aim high. Believe for more. Have faith in God's plan for this church. Have faith that this church can experience what is it's spoken of here. That, you know, over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul is not just saying, yeah, church life can be tough sometimes. So, you know, you've just you know, got to expect that it's just going to be like bouncing along the bottom the whole time. It's like saying, no, don't, don't allow kind of your expectations just to become lowered. It's saying, believe for more. Believe what God has got in store for his church. Believe for what that God has good and wonderful plans. If you are married, he's got good plans for your marriage too. Not that things just uh, rumble and bumble along the bottom and hopefully we'll just about be able to kind of like cling on there. No, we want to believe for more than that. Kind of this, this unity, this, this harmony. Experiencing the peace of Christ, enjoying the word of Christ, benefiting from, from real, meaningful and vibrant fellowship. That's what God's got in store. That's what God desires. So he lifts our eyes to see a vision that's good and glorious at the same sort of time as saying, look, it's great, it's wow, it's good. So it says, also, be realistic. You're going to have to bear with one another. You're going to have to forgive one another. Believe for more. 
pursue all that God has for us. But also, let's make it our deliberate action, our deliberate attempt in relationships one with another, as well as in our marriages as well, that we take, almost we take delight. We want to bear with one another. We want to, to forgive one another. And sometimes I kind of think, I don't have the, the fluffy emotions that would go along with making kind of forgiveness feel easy. Well, actually, it's as we, as we learn to bear with one another and forgive each other, it, it gets wrapped up in love, bound together in love. Actually, it might be that the affections kind of for one another, the, the sense of connection, it actually grows. Uh, and first and foremost, it can just be a sense of, yeah, I know I need today to make a specific step to, to forgive. My prayer, my desire is that would be, that would be our story. A, a community of people who are, who are quick to forgive. A community of people who are, who are patient with one another. We, we are happy to put up with the differences there are between us. We're not all the same. We don't all have the same background. We don't all have the same experiences of life. Uh, we don't all have the same way of thinking. We all come from different cultures and different expectations of the way in which life should pan out. Um, but actually, we've been called together. Christ is all and in all. And in him, we want to develop together a community of, of fun, of fellowship, of friendship, of forgiveness and forbearance as well, and to do exactly the same in our marriages for the glory of God.